This is the Get Healthy 360 Podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. It's a huge honor for me to have today Dr. Andrea Trescott. Dr. Trescott is one of the legends in the field of pain medicine. She has been doing this for long enough to know the history of pain management. She was there at the beginning of the opioid crisis, throughout the opioid crisis, and where we are right now. Still, I would argue, in the state of crisis and figuring out how to deal with narcotics and pain management. As Actually, as a quick summary, she has a very impressive bio. She is the president and director of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians. She's the president of the Florida past. Society, past yeah. president of the, I'm sorry, Dr. Trescott, how about you introduce yourself? And then I will. Okay. I'll, that is probably easier. Okay. Yeah, as I said, Chris, I'm a, a, a bunch of pasts. That's sort of the advantage of having been doing this for 30 years. Yes, I was um, the president. I was one of the inaugural members of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians and its past president. I was the founder of the Florida Society of Interventional Pain Physicians and its past president. Um, I've been involved with the world on the uh, with the World Institute of Pain as the director of their as the chair of their education committee. I've been in private. I was in private practice for 15 years and then got recruited to the University of Florida to run their pain program, pain fellowship program. And then to the University of Washington, where I made full professor and um, ran their pain fellowship program. And then I've been up in Alaska for the last seven years, where I had three clinics and three surgery centers there. And then um, just moved back to Florida as as the pandemic hit and uh, back in private practice. But I'm also the chief medical officer of Stimwave Technologies, which is an implanted um, IPG-free wireless uh, peripheral and spinal cord stimulator company. I've written a 900-page textbook on peripheral nerve entrapments and testified in front of Congress and a lot of different things. But um, so back in private practice again. And you were also commissioned for the military. I was. I spent the Navy paid my way through medical school. I was a lieutenant commander. And um, uh, as you you as you pointed out, I had uh, a sharpshoot my uh, a Navy accommodation medal. But also the one I'm more proud of is the uh, sharpshooter 38 and 45. So uh, there's lots of lots of reasons for people to listen to what you have to say besides your <laughs> academic extensive academic qualifications. So um, let's start at the beginning. So what is pain management? It's, I feel, so as a, if, if anyone's listening to this, I'm also a pain physician, but um, Dr. Trescott's in a totally different league. So what is pain management and how should people think about it? Well, we actually have pain management and interventional pain management, very much like we have cardiology and interventional cardiology. And the problem with pain management and why it's been so hard to define and so hard to 
to police has been that every other specialty starts out as a residency. You go through medical school and then you do um, either an internship in a residency or you go straight into a residency where you get training on that particular field. And then uh, you might specialize in a fellowship and um, the to get additional training. So as an um I would go to medical school, become an internist, do cardiology, and then do um, an interventional cardiology fellowship or do radiology and then do an interventional radiology fellowship. With pain medicine, this has been a field that has grown sort of organically. There are I think a couple of reasons that anesthesiologists sort of got involved um, Probably the the biggest one was that anesthesiologists in the 1950s were already doing anesthetics with spinals and epidurals. And 1957 is when the first time there was a steroid injection into the epidural space for low back pain. And so clearly the people who were in that space all the time, it made sense to have them involved. Though interesting enough, the first caudal epidural for pain, which wasn't done with steroids, it was done with local anesthetic, was done in 1901 by a group of urologists. So, um, but anesthesiologists predominantly um, were involved in the field. They were used to doing the injections around nerves, the regional anesthesia, um, and uh, many of the leaders in the field, John Benica, um, John DeCray, um, were, were anesthesiologists first and then shifted into pain, either because of a, um, a, a glaring need or a passion or both. And then, th- however, there's nothing about anesthesia that actually prepares you to do pain management other than sticking needles in people. The needle skills are really the only part of anesthesia that transfers to pain management. So physical medicine and rehab, much more trained to how to do a a history and a physical and how to manage a patient in a clinic and how to um, do diagnostic tests and how to do um, a diagnostic physical exam. And then neurology had special skills in that. And so um, what has happened is that pain management, uh, pain management with, because there is no residency has been done at a fellowship level, uh, a higher level. So in that one year of fellowship, you have to teach everything that includes the physical exam and the history and the management and the diagnostic test and the psychological consequences and the medications and, oh, by the way, the intervention. So I do strongly believe that this field needs a residency in pain medicine. And that would then be the medication, the, the, mindfulness, the, um, the counseling, the behavioral modifications, the, all of that would then go be taught in the residency. And then you would then spend time learning how to do the diagnostic and therapeutic interventions. 
Um, and I think then that's what's going to be necessary for this to become a full-fledged, well-recognized um, specialty. Because there is no overriding, over super, I mean, supervising group, you know, if I'm a if I'm an interventional cardiologist and I'm out there doing uh, really bizarre stuff, um, esophageal stints or getting people to, to pay for their statins cash under the table, I've got the, the cardiology association that would be saying, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not, we're going to remove your board, your board certification. We've got some sort of stick for them, but because everybody there's no overriding um, organization, then we have the potential for all these bad actors. And that's, I think, what got us into trouble. Now, I would argue that ASEP, uh, the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians, is and functions as that overriding organization by writing the guidelines, by setting the standards, by doing the training programs, by um, creating the uh, the the um, the positions on the CAC and the specialty designations, and that that ASEP has been able to accomplish over the last 25 years or so that I've often, la I did a little presentation one time for a, a ceremony and I had a picture of Dr. Manchikanti on, um, on a marshal's body and a big star and the star had ASAP on it because, you know, Dr. Manchikanti has been really trying to be the sheriff coming in and, and bringing some law and order into the wild, wild west. Unfortunately, this whole opioid crisis has given pain management a bad name, and it's not an opioid crisis in my mind. It is a drug abuse crisis. There are that group of patients who take their medicines responsibly, who get relief from their medicines, who lead normal functional lives with their medication, and those have been lumped into those patients who are overdosing on heroin and fentanyl and um, cocaine and all of those because they're all seen by the CDC as the same thing. I mean, there's been this huge group of deaths from fentanyl, of which only 0.001% is from transdermal prescribed fentanyl for pain. And so you get this very skewed view. Now, I will tell you, there have been horrible, horribly bad actors. Um, doctors who were selling prescriptions, who were giving prescriptions for sex, who were doing it for money, who were doing it for fun and profit. Um, I was the expert witness on a, um, for a, a guy in Las Vegas who admitted under oath that he didn't list the medicines that he prescribed because he gave the same dose to everyone. And he was at a, under a deposition because one of the patients who subsequently died had had a car accident. And so he was being deposed, said, you know, no, I give the same dose to everybody. So I don't need to write down 
what in my notes, what it is I give. And he said, I can't do a physical exam on patients. I'm seeing too many patients. So um, I don't do a physical exam on them. And it, or another one where um, in Jacksonville, there was a physician's assistant who was running a pain clinic. I've got, I saw the under the undercover video of people standing outside in three in August at three o'clock in the afternoon. And those of you who don't know Florida in August don't know that it's, um, you know, 115 and a hundred percent humidity. They're all standing out in line and, and the undercover cop is there taking video and I'm trying to figure out why everybody's standing outside. Is it just because the office isn't open? Well, it turns out they were waiting to get in. It was standing room only. They were giving out numbers um, and the, the PA would call out, you know, give me, I, I want pa- patient 101 to 110 come in. And she then have their charts. What do we give you? 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 And they would have paid their money ahead of time and they would get a faxed prescription that had been signed by a retired pathologist and it would be uh, sent to the pharmacy. And now these pharmacists knew that that was, those were bad medicines. They knew this guy was a, was a pathologist. They knew that there was no business doing it, but they filled him anyway because it turned out for some of these pharmacies, it was as much as 50% of their gross revenue. So you had patients who were using the medicine for non-medical reasons. You had providers who were writing them for fun and profit. You had pharmacists who were filling them with clearly not a legitimate medical purpose. And people died. And that was no surprise, but it was not because of the pain patients. So you have a whole group of physicians and they've formed a group called Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. And the president is Andrew Kolodny. And I will mention that his specialty is not pain management. His specialty is psychiatry. Correct. So what are your, it's a, it's a very impressive sounding group, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. What are your thoughts on that group? I think personally that group has been involved surreptitiously in the development of inappropriate guidelines. The, um, their, the whole CDC guideline process which was first of all, supposed to be guidelines, not mandates, not dictums, but guidelines for family practitioners, not interventional pain, not pain physicians, for family practitioners for the initiation of medicine, of opioids. And instead, PROP has taken this CDC guideline for which they were um, part of, they were involved in developing and have criminalized the the responsible use of opioids. And every single day I get emails from patients from all over the nation in desperation because they're, um, I got a, I got a, I got a text yesterday. Patient has terminal cancer and lives up in Alaska 
is seeing the a, a physician's assistant. He's on 225 um, morphine equivalents, milligrams of morphine equivalent, and no one will write his pain medicines because he's not in hospice yet. He's not, he doesn't meet hospice because he has more than three months to live. And um, he's facing being taken off of his opioids because nobody will write his medicines. But wouldn't he be classed as palliative care? Uh, That's the problem is that the guidelines specifically said that was not supposed to be for cancer, but there is not a single physician in that area who's willing to write medicines of that MME because this group prop has gone out and and testified against physicians who are are prescribing more than 90 morphine equivalents. And, and, and so there has, they have created this environment of fear and, and there are, I, I also get nearly daily requests from lawyers to try and defend doctors who were doing routine urine screens and pill counts and monitoring their patients and doing um, intermittent interventions and who are facing criminal charges for overprescribing opioids. And who's bringing these charges against the physicians? Um, they are overzealous DEA agents. And there's a whole patchwork of, uh, it's very strange. There's no, there'll be prosecutors in one state that are very aggressive in um, seizing the assets of physicians and, and claiming that these assets are due to drug dealing. Uh, I had one guy I knew who was in his 70s. He'd had a pain fellowship uh, at UVA, well-recognized program, one of the second oldest in the nation, had developed a hip pain, had a hip replacement. He was seeing five patients a day and doing everything right but because he wrote for higher doses of medicines, the DEA agents came in, seized all of his records, everything, um, threatened his office manager with jail time because she had mailed prescriptions to patients who couldn't make it to the office. And um, he asked me to defend him, and I offered to do it pro bono, but the, the um, Prosecutors said that they would seize. Um, he sold his house to pay for his lawyer bills, and they said that he would, that they would seize all of that money and leave his wife penniless unless he pled guilty. And he is in jail right now um, at seventy-two years old. So the stories of the physicians have been enough to <laughs> curdle your blood the stories of the patients who are committing suicide and because of desperation where they were functional and now they're bedridden. One of my patients had uh, chronic intractable headaches. I did a lot of interventions on him, identified what the problem was, but I put him on methadone, had him up to 120 milligrams of methadone. He got complete relief of his headaches. He had 
prior to that had been estranged from his family, lost his job, lost his family, lost everything. After I put him on the methadone, he was able, we were able to wean him back to about 30 milligrams more under 30 milligrams. He would get pain. He would get pain again at 30 milligrams. He got good relief. The, I followed him for 15 years at the same dose of methadone. He got his job back as a pharmacist. He got his wife back. He walked his son down the, um, down the aisle. His email is Emily's granddad. That's his granddaughter's name. And, and I'm not going to be able to say this without tearing up, but every, uh, the beginning of every year, and he's gone through a Whipple, he's gone through terrible things. He would, he would write me every year and say, every year, my wife and I go th- um, make a list of the things for which we're most grateful. And, you're always at the top of the list for starting you know, methadone. He was on 40 milligrams of methadone, totally functional. His physician dropped him to 20 because that was the guidelines. And he has spent the last six months in a dark room with a return of his headaches. And he can't find anybody to write his methadone at 40 milligrams a day. So... Um, so there's a, a huge disconnect. There are, it's clear in my mind that there are people who are getting high doses of medicine who would benefit from interventions. And the analogy I use is that if you had a tooth that was bothering you, an infected tooth, I could give you pain medicines and that would treat the pain of the infected tooth, but it's not going to get that better. And there are reasons to do that. If you didn't, if you had an infection and you needed antibiotics before you could do anything for the tooth, if there was no dentist in the community, if you didn't have money to see a dentist, there are reasons to do that. But fixing the tooth would be the most appropriate way to do it. And if you've got multiple teeth that are a problem, maybe pulling all of them and getting dentures would be the appropriate treatment. And in the same way, there are certainly people who have had bad, had bad or no outcomes 15 years ago when our techniques were very new and they are now seeing, you know, have said, well, I'm just going to do pain medicines because interventions don't work. And, or they've been seeing an unethical doctor who's saying, if you don't do pain injections, I'm not going to do medicines. The, but there are clearly a large number of those patients who could be optimized, um, managed on perhaps a lower dose of medicine, managed on. I've got, I have one gal that I had on Oxycontin 80 milligrams four times a day, and her pain scores were eight and nine, and I switched her to buprenorphine with pain scores of zero to one. Sometimes it's the recognition that it's the wrong opioid. Um, we know that most of our opioids require 2D6, cytochrome P450, 2D6 to metabolize them to their active form. Codeine to morphine, tramadol to its active metabolite, oxycodone to oxymorphone, hydrocodone to hydromorphone. 10% of Caucasians don't have that enzyme. I don't have that enzyme. The only time I had Percocet was after a, um, a big jaw sur- a dental procedure. And I took six oxycodone, six Percocet and got no relief 
whatsoever, nothing. I went back a week later for a second surgery and I gave them back the Percocet and said, can you just give me a couple of Darvocet? It was just before propoxyphene went off the market um, because it's not metabolized by 2D6. I took one Darvocet. I couldn't get off the floor as an opioid virgin, right? And so I got genetically tested and sure enough, I'm 2D6 deficient. So fast forward a couple of years, my son was getting his wisdom teeth taken out. I'm in Alaska, he's in Florida. And so like any good pain doctor mother, I called the surgeon and said, you know, what are you going to do for anesthesia? And what are you going to do for post-op pain? And he said, hydrocodone. And I said, that's fine. It's a great medicine, not a problem, except, you know, I'm genetically proven 2D6 deficient. My son, as far as I know, has never had opioids. Of course, he's, he was off at college. Who knows what he'd been doing? But in any case, I didn't have any any expectation that he had had been on opioids before. And um, I said that's conceivable that he inherited that same 2D6. My son took 10 hydrocodone, got no relief, went back to the surgeon and got thrown out for drug seeking. So the idea that there are people who are not metabolizing these medicines. I have patients who have poor OPRM1 receptors. Their opioid their mu opioid receptor doesn't work. It doesn't matter what you're going to give them. That isn't going to work. But you know, there there are other opioids that have other effects. Um, and sometimes a buprenorphine would help with that, or maybe they need a pump with pre-alt or, you know, lots of other things that potentially could be um, a management of them. So I think there are people who have patients who have been, who need a reevaluation. If you have not seen a pain doctor, an interventional pain doctor in five years, you need to be reevaluated for what could be an option. So my understanding is that they're in the middle of redoing the CDC guidelines. We have, I've been working with people to try and get to speak to those guidelines because unfortunately we can't, we have not been able to identify for sure who's involved in that other than prop. And so it appears to be a very skewed group of people who are and a non-transparent group of people who are redoing these guidelines. And um, there has been a very limited opportunity for public comment, a very limited uh, um, opportunity to influence those guidelines. And we have some of the authors claiming, well, we didn't think it was, we, we didn't believe that it was going to be done like that. We didn't, that's not how it was intended. Well, uh, the road to hell has been paved with good intentions. It has needs to be completely not overhauled. It needs to be rescinded and started over. So who's in charge of the CDC guidelines then and actually coordinating that? Good question. I wish I knew because it is not clear. It is not transparent and it is not available um, to, to anything that I've been able to find. And that is extremely worrisome. I was on the health and human services committee for their task force. So, so just to clarify, so yes. sorry to interrupt, but yes. so um, can you clarify what is the health and human services and what we can talk about is what is the pain management interagency task force and who's Vanilla Singh? Okay. So Vanilla Singh is actually a 
interventional pain physician um, at Stanford, and she was also the chief medical officer of Health and Human Services. So a brilliant woman. Oh, my God, a brilliant, brilliant woman. And there was a legislative mandate to do this inter, um, interagency task force. We had addictionologists, pediatrician, pharmacologists, interventional pain management, orthopedic surgeon, dental, uh, neurosurgeon. Uh, we had a true wide variety of interdisciplines. And we met in open forum and then had open comments about our findings and then published them openly uh, with the um, what our, our recommendations were and a very different process than what's happened with the CDC. We actually did have the CDC as one of the members of the task force as well. And what were some of the findings of the interagency task force that would maybe conflict or differ from the CDC guidelines? There was no man, there was no specific limit of opioids that it had to be personalized. The recognition that there are um, a wide variety of responses to medicine uh, emphasis on, on alternative therapies but the recognition that interventional pain management was a significant portion of the treatment and diagnosis, uh, but the gen- a recognition of the genetics, a recognition of the use of adjuvants, a recognition of the role of addiction versus inadequate opioid prescribing. So a very, a very individualized approach. So you have the CDC guidelines, which is what the DA agents and assorted law enforcement officials are following. But then you also have the pain management interagency task force guidelines, which are different and allow for and, individualization of care. And we have the ACIP guidelines. I was at the, we have the opioid, we've been writing opioid guidelines from ACIP from since 2003 and a step-by-step approach, 10 steps, identify the, patho- you know, identify the pathology, uh, optimize the, uh, the therapies, come up with a working diagnosis, a treatment plan, the initiation of low-dose opioids, monitoring with uh, urines and pill counts, um, the reevaluation at each step of how effective the opioids were, the role of interventions, the looking at uh, prescription drug monitoring programs, and then supporting the behavioral modifications and aspects of it, and then rinse and repeat, and just repeating each of the, you know, you you go through, and then every time you're doing, it, you're reassessing at every step what whether or not these are still appropriate. So it seems odd that you wouldn't have a, a group of pain physicians and behavioral health specialists and a sort of other specialists like the um, pain management inter- interagency task force that they wouldn't have precedence over the group from the prop group, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing. Because what's interesting to me is um, that prop group led by um, Andrew Kolodny, they want to 
really just have no one on any sort of narcotics, but they have no answers for the people who are in chronic pain. So, Absolutely not. So it, it, to me, what, it would be like saying, okay, our goal with somebody who has diabetes is to take them off insulin. You'd rather not have people on insulin. You'd rather not have them on high blood pressure medicines. You'd rather not have them on asthma medicines. But to take somebody off their insulin when their blood sugar is 300 makes no sense. You have to get the blood sugar under control before you can start to wean the insulin. And to simply say insulin is bad because if people have overdoses and they die of hypoglycemia, it is not an appropriate reason to take somebody off their insulin. And in the same way, there are a group of people who who get addicted to the medicines. There are a group of people who get liver failure with statins. It's your responsibility as as a physician, if you're prescribing a statin, to monitor the liver functions, to make sure that the patient is not drinking alcohol and not smoking, and that you're looking at liver function tests periodically. Um, but you don't, if they need a statin, they need a statin. If they have problems with it, you need to take them off the statin and put them on something else. Opioids are no different. They are, they are tools. They have potential bad side effects, but those side effects are predictable and if monitored and treatable if monitored. So a unique class of people are people with cancer pain. Correct. And it, it's really hard to argue that if someone has cancer and potentially dying of cancer, you should probably give them pain medication. But sometimes, like, it seems like the people from PROP don't really want to do that. No. And then what about the people who have pain after a cancer surgery? We have this group of people who are cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. They've had disfiguring and pain-causing surgeries. They've developed peripheral neuropathies from their chemotherapy. They have um, debilitating pain and, and collapse of their vertebral bodies because of radiation treatment. And they're being told that they can't have pain medicines because they're not dying anymore. So it seems obvious to me then that this prop group, I don't really know what their agenda is, but it seems like it's just an odd agenda to just say you can't have narcotics, but you really have to just be miserable in pain. We have, uh, there is some sort of hidden agenda there. And I don't know whether there is a funding agenda or whether there's a personal agenda, but their approach has never made any sense to me as a practicing pain physician where I see these patients every day and I've seen the consequences of props actions and I've seen the consequences of the subsequent CDC guidelines and it is heart rendering rending. So the, so let's, let's talk about cancer pain. So there's, there are narcotics that, that we've been discussing, but what are some of the other options in the world of interventional pain management that you can offer and that other pain physicians can offer people with cancer patients. And I think it would be worth noting that in my experience, and I'm looking for you to comment on this, but there's a small subset of people that pain physicians, interventional pain physicians that will treat cancer pain. It is not a very common thing. And it's a heartbreak that it's not a common thing because interventional pain management has a huge 
has a ton of things that they can offer. And I'll give you again, a personal example. My mother-in-law was um, diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, her primary doctor had been giving her Nexium for a left upper quadrant pain that turned out to be a grapefruit sized tumor eroding on the rib. So they immediately put her on high dose Dilaudid and she was nearly unresponsive, but still writhing in pain. She was up in Canada. So I told my then husband, look, we'll just bring her down and I'll put an intrathecal pump in her. And they don't have intrathecal opioids in Canada, or at least none that are, are, are available. So I, uh, if she survives, I'll, I'll smuggle the morphine up for her pump and I'll refill her. And she's your mother. We, you know, we need to do what's it's sure $40,000 that we'll have to pay out of pocket, but she's your mother and we'll just do it. And so we, they, brought her down and literally laid her on my couch and I'm examining her and she's just right there when I hit the rib. And so I did an intercostal nerve block there on my couch. And a couple of hours later, she wakes up and she goes, you know, where am I? And I said, you're, you know, you're at our house. And she goes, Oh, Oh, well, I feel pretty good. I'm hungry. And I said, are you hurting at all? She said, no, I'm not hurting at all. And so I, put her on, um, on celecoxib and a lidoderm patch. And she did great. And about a week later, I said, well, maybe I'll just cryo those nerves. So I brought her into the office to do an intercostal under fluoro to, so I could be sure where I was going with the anticipation of trying to cryo her. Two weeks later, she still had no pain and no opioids. And she said, I want to go back home. Wait, and, and what did. procedure did you do? Just an intercostal nerve block, oh, one okay. Lambert guided and one under fluoro, and that and put her on an anti-inflammatory and a local anesthetic patch. So for the, I'm going to ask you to do your best explaining this in layman's terms, but also medical terms, because I know people will want to know. So how is it that just a local anesthetic could reset? Well, an anti, I, I did a mm-hmm. local anesthetic with steroid mm-hmm. um, because the tumor was creating a mechanical inflammation of the nerve. Mm-hmm. And the, it's an inflammatory response. So I put her on a, an injectable sterile, uh, anti-inflammatory, an oral anti-inflammatory, and it was very close to the surface. So a local anesthetic patch could provide the additional relief. It is, so I think that it's just amazes me how often simple sorts of treatments, a, a gal with rectal, with rectal CA that I did a caudal epidural on. And she would, that she was on the hospice ward. She left, went back home and she and her daughter would stop by the office on their way out shopping to pick up some pain meds because, you know, other than that, she was doing fine. Um, it is the, we have, certainly we've got intrathecal um, opioids that we can do. And so for anyone who's listening, what is an intrathecal opioid? Thank you. Um, these are, we know that 300 milligrams of morphine by mouth is equivalent to about 10 milligrams of morphine by vein is equivalent to about um, one milligram of morphine inside the spinal fluid. There are receptors in the spinal fluid on the spinal cord that block pain signals from getting to the brain. So instead of taking it and dulling the brain, you're able to block the pain signals from getting to the brain. And that can be extraordinarily effective in providing um, a huge amount of pain relief without 
the dulling of the brain that you see when you give that equivalent dose by mouth or by vein. What are your and, thoughts on, oh, I'm sorry. Or, yeah, you oh, what are your thoughts on um, neurolytic blocks for cancer pain? Again, um, a, it's amazing what you can do with a little bit of phenol or alcohol. If you've identified or, or cryo or RF, um, if you have a localized area of pain, like my mother-in-law, my plan had been to kill the nerves by freezing them. I could have done phenol. I could have done alcohol. I could have done radio frequency. I happen to be a, a fan of cryo. We're actually even now doing cryo and RF of the tumors themselves and having a, a significant decrease. Uh, so I think if you've got a localized area of pain, you should kill that area just like you would do a root canal on a tooth that was bothering you. We have the ability to do when we've got collapses of bone from metastases in the spine, we um, do vertebroplasties and kyphoplasties, but we're now doing that same cement into ribs and into the, the bones of the arm and of the leg and of the sacrum and of the, um, of the, any place where the tumor has gone into the bone and is creating bone pain, we can inject medicines or even the bone cement to try and the heat from the bone cement kills the tumor, but it also prevents that from collapsing. It's the breaking of the bone that we think is so painful, the little micro fractures or the major fracture as the, the bone um, gets eaten inside, uh, away inside by the metastasis and then collapses. And what are your thoughts? So neuromodulation, and for those who don't have the background, so there's something called the spinal cord stimulator. And, no, and peripheral nerve stimulators. And peripheral nerve stimulators, if you want to nerves talk about those. Only, yeah, nerves can only carry one signal at a time. And if they're busy carrying a non-painful signal, then the painful signal can't get through. And it's actually this, the reason that when you bang your shin, you rub it. That rubbing blocks the pain signals. That's how a TENS unit works. Um People may have used a transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulator, but we can now put them underneath the skin and control them, power them either under the skin or from outside the skin to be able to block pain signals from getting to the brain. If it don't, if you don't, if it doesn't get to the brain, you don't feel it. So this will be a little bit more of a technical question, probably for, for the physicians listening, but also for patients. So there's the normal spinal cord stimulators that go in your spinal cord. And then there are peripheral not nerve stimulators. In the stimulators. space, not in, in the, the epidural. Yes, correct. Correct. That's, <laughs> you, thank you for the correction. Yes, in the epidural space, um, not the, and then you have the peripheral nerve stimulators. So why would someone want a peripheral nerve stimulator versus one of those spinal cord stimulators that go in the epidural space? So um, for a couple of reasons, one is if you're having pain, let's say on your foot, rather than blocking everything coming up, you can localize the stimulation just to the area of where it's hurting and block just that nerve that's causing the pain. So the, the more peripheral you are, the, the more specific you are, you can do a laser-sided rifle or you can do a shotgun approach. The shotgun is going to affect a lot, uh, a larger area, but it's also going to affect a larger area as opposed to doing the treatment just where the problem is. So this is this question I know is going to be of interest specifically to the pain physicians, but it'll also apply to patients who are listening. 
So there, there is something called a dorsoganglion spinal cord stimulator that you can, someone could have implanted in the, correct me if I'm wrong, the epidural space that sits over that, this little clump of nerves to say address pain in the foot, or you could have a peripheral nerve stimulator like Stimwave. Um, and I did say I was chief medical officer. And you are chief medical officer of Stimwave. So, okay. so there's a full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, why would someone choose, say, Stimwave over a dorsal root ganglion stimulator? And what would be the pros and cons of each? Okay. So um, the, the advantage of a peripheral nerve stimulator is that you're stimulating directly where the target is. Up until recently, however, you still had to connect it to an implanted power generator um, or an IPG. And that battery pack, anybody who's ever seen someone with a pacemaker knows that that battery pack can sort of stick out of the skin. But that battery pack had to have enough tissue to be able to make a pocket. So that meant if you were doing it at the ankle, there's just no skin there for the to do it at the ankle. So you'd have to to run an extension all the way up the leg to get it into the belly or into the buttocks, someplace where there was enough room. And so as you can imagine, having that long wire going across joints, it pulled and tugged and um, often dislodged the stimulator and was a lot of surgery and a major um, ordeal. With these wireless stimulators with these systems that have the power on the outside, what you're doing is implanting a very specialized um, electrode array that's then connected to a receiver. Everything is underneath the skin through often two small incisions that can be a procedure that can be done under local anesthetic. Now, the dorsal root ganglion stimulation by Abbott requires you to get into the epidural space, thread an electrode up, and then use a special tool to make it curl back down and then out the nerve root. And this is a a very difficult technique. It has a very steep learning curve. It takes a lot of training to be able to do it. It's a, because you're working right around the nerve roots themselves, very often it's as though you keep hitting your funny bone. Um, And so there are, it's very uncomfortable for the patient. And so they're usually done under a very deep sedation or a general anesthetic. And it is, um, (laughs) when you see the picture of, all the wires that are in there and the fact that this has to get up and then turn and make a hairpin turn back down to be able to get out the nerve root. It's just a very, very technically difficult thing to do. So I always look at simple things first. Um, If a simple diet, if a simple injection of the nerve takes care of it, because many times these nerves are inflamed and they get entrapped, decrease the entrapment and they stop hurting then, um, so I do the diagnostic injections. I do hydrodissection, which is where I take fluid to try and release the scar tissue around the nerve to provide good blood flow to the nerve again. And then um, stimulation of that at that site. I can always move up if I need to, but simple things are simple. And I always try the simplest first. So th- this is a question I think will apply to everyone. How 
some so it's standard for the dorsal that dorsal column or that epidural catheter to be covered. The coverage for the dorsal ganglion stimulator by Abbott is is plus and minus. Sometimes it's covered, sometimes it's not. How is the coverage by insurance companies for peripheral nerve stimulation or specifically Stimwave? It's covered by Medicare and it's covered by a group of insurances. There had we there had not been good studies done. We are uh, days away from starting a multi-center randomized plus, uh, sham controlled trial of the nerve for the knee, the infrapatellar saphenous nerve, followed rapidly by the suprascapular nerve, which is the one that goes to the shoulder, the superior clunial nerve that goes across the, the top of the hip bone that causes pain going down the leg, and the posterior tibial nerve that goes to the bottom of the foot and the, and the heel. So each of those is being done by exactly the same protocol so that we'll be able to, to combine the results in a meta-analysis and um, show then that, that it, it should be any nerve that um, can be treated effectively. Um, so again, with full disclosure, so you're the chief medical officer of Stimwave, but how would your how would Stimwave's peripheral nerve stimulation p- platform differ from the other peripheral nerve stimulators like Sprint or um, the other ones? I can't remember right now. Uh, Bionis and Bionis. are the so um, Sprint is comes out of the skin. It's designed to be put in temporarily for 60 days. And it has a power pack that has to be glued onto the skin. The um, bioness is underneath the skin, but you glue on the, um, the receiver and then you control it by uh, a handheld programmer. So because you have to put the power pack directly over the skin, you can't use that for until the incision has healed. So you put it in, but you got to wait two weeks before you can do it. Nalu is, um, has both spinal cord stimulation and peripheral nerve stimulation, but their power pack is a, looks like a hockey puck um, and has to be glued to the skin and requires a special glue remover to get it off of the skin. And then it's programmed. Uh, it has to be controlled by, um, a handheld programmer that's part of your uh, an app. Stimwave, the entire system is is underneath the skin. The antenna is uh, um, separated from the skin by a layer of clothing, and then it's connected to a power pack that you push up and down or uh, or change programs from three simple buttons. And through that three simple buttons, you can change through three programs and turn it up and down or off. And that power pack, when it, the power runs out, you unscrew that, take the one that's charging on the wall, screw it back on, and off you go. And so the um, we think it's you can use it immediately after the implantation. It is MRI compatible to 1.5 Tesla, so you can still do MRIs that many of these systems are not MRI compatible. And it can use a wide variety of waveforms. So they can, some patients like to have the tingling, some like to have no tingling. So we can do subthreshold, burst, uh, high density, tonic, 
a wide variety of waveforms that are all programmed through a um, through an iPad um, and then are in, incorporated in the power pack. And this is a question that um, sometimes doesn't get addressed, but what, so these, so we talked about the dorsal ganglion stimulator, the dorsal column stimulator in the epidural space and a variety of, of peripheral spinal cord stimulators. Perfect. What are the complications of all these things? Because they all can provide pain relief, but they also all have downsides such as um, bleeding complications, spinal cord injury complications, lead fracture issues. So let's move from peripheral to, to central. So the peripheral nerve stimulators can move. So uh, Stimwave happens to have a, a stimulator that has little tines and a the tines keep it from pulling out. And then we do a coil to keep it from migrating um, forward. The the way we place them, they don't cross over any joints. So there's a very, um, very little of the breakage because there's not any um, manipulation of it. It goes in and it stays there in the tissues. And so we've I've developed the techniques that I've developed for placing these are designed so that they're in areas where they don't move very much. There is a risk of bleeding, but it peripherally it's very small because you can put compression on it. And the um, we have blunt a blunt tip needle that we use for the introducer that doesn't tear doesn't cut the blood vessels. It moves the tissue out of the way. Um, infection is a problem anytime you break the skin, but um, we recommend antibiotics by vein and by mouth. And if it's an infection, you simply take out the stimulator and the infection clears. It would be no different than any infection you might get from a, from a dog bite or from a, um, scraping your leg or um, getting a splinter in uh, underneath the skin. The, um, the dorsal root ganglion um, from the Abbott system, um, there's a risk of nerve damage because you're putting the needles right um, next to the nerves as they're passing out through the spinal column. So those nerves are fixed in a canal and they can't move out of the way. And so that um, the risk of nerve damage, you're bleeding inside the epidural space can be devastating because the the blood has the, the blood has no place to go but put pressure on the spinal cord. And so that pressure on the spinal cord can cause paralysis. The, um, and then infection in the epidural space um, is what we, is the dreaded complication because it actually then requires you to open up the spine to be able to drain the infections. And that's pretty much the same sort of set of, of complications with the, and I don't use the term dorsal column stimulation because it turns out we're stimulating multiple structures inside the spinal column. So spinal cord stimulation, uh, both the, dors the uh, dorsal root uh, ganglion and the uh, spinal cord stimulator can uh, migrate and then you lose, um, you lose stimulation. But they're all put in as a trial, which is what's nice. So, um, you know, you can imagine, you know, what if you got to try out your back surgery before you had it done? Um, we, you get to try it. You, you um, the peripheral and the spinal cord stimulator, you just, it goes in temporarily and you try it for, you know, five to seven days. And at that time you pull it out like you pull out an IV 
And I've had patients who stood with their backs against the wall saying, you're not taking this thing out until you schedule me for surgery because it, it felt so good. So what are, you've been doing this for a long time, but I'm sure there are, there are cases that stick with you. What are some of the most rewarding cases that you've had that you can discuss? Um, I think, um, well, one of my favorite intrathecal opioids, one of my, um, was a patient who had been a, she had been a karate instructor, a black belt, and she just stepped off the mat to let a student have the mat and she tripped and fell and ended up having a total of 14 back surgeries. And when I met her, she was totally bed bound. And, um, so I did the trial. I did just a dose of, um, of pain medicine in the spinal fluid in the hospital. And I came to say, see her later that night and she wasn't in a room. Her daughter had her in the wheelchair, wheeling her around the hospital. Now this is a woman who had not sat up in a chair for five years. She's wheeling around. And so she comes for her pre-op visit for the pump. And I always ask my patients, so what is it you want to do? I mean, what, what's the goal? What is your goal for this? To, to make sure they have realistic goals. And she said, I want to go sit and watch a movie. I want to go to the theater and see a movie in the big screen. And I went, well, okay, that's reasonable. So I put the, I did the um, implant and she comes for her first post-op visit and she's at a scooter and she's got this, this Marlena Dietrich hat on. She's got makeup. She's, I said, well, what movie did you see? She said, I can't be bothered. I'm not going to spend my life sitting in a, a dark movie theater. I've moved out of my daughter's house. I'm in an assisted living. I've got a boyfriend. I run the bingo games. And, and so, I mean, just a, a remarkable quality of life um, that we were able to give her. The, you know, I put my first pump in in 1991. I was the first female anesthesiologist in the nation credentialed to do these pumps. So they would say managing pain pumps are also, that's a dying art, like it's a cancer dying pain art. management. It, and it's a, it's, it's a, a tragedy. I, I think the problem is, is that they, the impression had been you do a couple of little things and then you put a pump in and they truly are not the treatment of first use. They need to be an end of the road treatment, but they're extraordinarily effective. And one thing I am going to put a, a, a plug in Medtronics has, I, I don't know how many of your listeners um, knew or knew of Lisa Stearns. She was an interventional pain physician in Arizona who did almost exclusively cancer pain and cancer pump medicines. She died very tragically last year, just a, a freak accident. And so Medtronics has created an educational pathway to try and help train more doctors in the screening, uh, implantation and management of um, cancer pain. And so, so with it, so there's an, it's great that they have that pathway, but sometimes there's some bias with when industry is sponsoring yeah, something. True. And what, if someone wanted to further their education on um, pain pump management, what would be an alternative pathway? Short sure of calling you and saying, how do I do this? Yeah, well, actually, what we're setting up is a mentor program. So um, the 
uh, docs will have, we're have, planning a meeting together um, and then with educational stuff. And then we will be able to bring those docs into our practices um, to- Was that through Medtronic? This is being sponsored by a, a, a grant from Medtronic. Okay. And so, uh, and I'm putting together the curriculum, I'm working on the curriculum now. So um, unfortunately these things take money and, but it's an yes. unrestricted grant but it, oh. uh, and, uh, um, and a scholarship program in Lisa's name. Oh, that's and, fantastic. Uh, yeah, it really is. They've done just a, a, a that I, I, I think has been a, a very good program. It, um, there are, it, it is, it's, it's harder. Um, it's, very hard. ASIP at one point had a pump and stem training program that they were doing. Uh, the you know you put a pump in somebody you marry you you marry there you marry them they they're yours for life. It's um, and that's one of the limitations for especially if you're a solo practitioner. But mm-hmm. they are um, one of many techniques that we have that are just really remarkable in terms of providing pain relief. And I just think it's so exciting. I, when I started doing this in my, my, my anesthesia residency, the very first rotation was pain management, luck of the draw, somebody has got to do it, but none of my attendings liked being in the pain clinic. So they would hide and I was there sort of by myself and it, but I just fell in love with it to, to be able to, um, found my first peripheral nerve, a superior colonial nerve on an active duty guy who'd failed epidurals. And I said, well, I don't know, show me where you're hurting. And he points to the top of the iliac crest. And I went, well, that's interesting. And I examined him and he's exquisitely tender in this one spot. And so I said, well, gee, I mean, I know it's just the top of the iliac crest. There's really nothing that I can get into trouble with there. So I just injected it and pain went away. And I went, Whoa, I, I always got court-martialed, but um, <laughs> it was uh, turned, it was. Um, Wait, why did you almost get court-martialed? Yeah, I almost got court-martialed. Why? Because, why? Because I did the injection without an attending. Um, oh, luckily, I see. Yeah, okay. luckily the guy was a critical member of his team and the, his commanding officer had already written the commanding officer of the hospital, praising me to high heavens for oh. getting this guy back to back to work. So... Um, anyway, it is, uh, I, I'll, I'll shameless plug, uh, my book on peripheral nerve entrapments, the 900 pages, um, has, uh, anybody, any of your listeners who are, are interested, I'm happy to send a, um, PDF of the, the book. I get no royalties from it. So you're going to, you're going to get court-martialed by the publisher. I think so. I know. <laughs> so. I got screwed by the publisher, but that's all right. Anyway, the um Well, we will include that in the show notes for anyone who wants the textbook. <laughs> for cuz I'll I'll ask for one. So that's fine. Sure. I I will I've got I've got some that I that I'm I will autograph for you and and so those those you do have to buy cuz I had to buy them for myself, but Fair enough. Yeah. Um and then what are so let's talk about so the opioid guidelines moving forward, we've covered that there are really two groups, one group called prop um, that really just, from my understanding, they just really don't want anyone to have narcotics, but objectively they don't offer solutions no. to treat pain, no. which, which is problematic. And then you have the pain inter, uh, management interagency task force that really, it seems like it's a multidisciplinary incorporating physical therapy, behavioral health, 
um, narcotics appropriately prescribed. And uh, I'm going to say I'm biased because I'm a pain physician. So it seems to make sense to me and interventions is appropriate. Um, and that that's headed by Vanilla Singh. And the CDC is redoing their guidelines. So if anyone's listening to this and they want to have some influence, what can they do? Well, I think the um, it, it has been extraordinarily difficult to get on the list to be able to um, to speak. And so um, Richard Lawhorn, and I gave you his information, is is on the list. He's going to try to speak. Uh, as far as I know, there are no interventional pain physicians on the committee. Um, there are no, uh, so there, it's a very, uh, a very, well, I, I, I don't know who's on the committee. I know uh, Roger Chow was on the committee. At one point, he's an internist. Um, but isn't it odd that you have a pain task force with no pain physicians? Oh, a CDC pain guidelines with no pain physicians absolutely is wrong. And um, so the, the, the guidelines are wrong on so many levels. And so, I, I mean, again, they should be looking at the ASIP guidelines, which were very laid out, very specific, very um, individualized, targeted approaches with monitoring, with um, uh, the, the stepwise treatment of pain. So. Um, and then what are you most excited for in the field of pain management? Because it seems like there's every few, even now, every two or three years, there's something new coming out, either a new peripheral nerve stimulator with more evidence, spinal cord stimulation, spinal cord stimulation, um, new interventional procedures. I know there are pain physicians doing minimally invasive spine fusions at this point. So what are you most excited about in the next coming years? Um, I've been, uh, I got involved with the minimally invasive spine, um, groups early on, um, in, in Seattle with, uh, dear friend, Saul Campson, who has since died, but, um, just remarkable to be able to do surgeries, fusions through just, um, little ports, um, it like, just like the difference between doing an appendectomy with, or a cholecystectomy, a, a gallbladder with a great big 10 inch incision or through lots of little ports. Um, the, I, I've, I've been doing regenerative medicine for 30 years and I, it's just exciting to see that come in. That could be the, a whole podcast in itself on regenerative. That's a whole podcast into itself. Um, the, the recognition, the, the, the more general recognition of the role of interventional of uh, peripheral nerves in the treatment of migraines and abdominal pain and pelvic pain and CRP, the chronic regional pain syndrome, CRPS, what used to be called RSD and um, the, and back pain. Uh, you know, we've, we've always assumed back pain came from inside the back, but we're now recognizing that there are multiple nerves outside the back that will give exactly the same symptoms, but are not coming from a herniated disc. So heaven forbid, you've got a bulge on your, um, on your MRI that may not be where the pain's coming from. The, um, uh, obviously stimulation is just exploding, um, which is, I mean, it's 50 years old. It was 50 years old, I think two years ago. And it is all of a sudden peripheral nerves, which were developed at the same time as spinal cord stimulation. 
um, the same year that the first spinal cord stimulation stimulator was put in by Norm Shealy, uh, Sweet and Wall did um, were stimulating the um, peripheral nerves. So it just it didn't have it didn't have its own technology, and now it's got its own technology. And the so um, expanding the nerves that are targets. Um, cryoneuroblation is getting a resurgence. We're doing, they're doing, we're doing cryo now for splenics and celiac plexus. Is that covered by insurance? Yes. 64640. It's the same codes. Remember the, the RF codes are by thermal or the neurolytic codes are thermal or chemical means. Thermal is heat, but it's also cold. Thermos bottle keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. Right. Okay. So yeah, lots of lots of fun things, and just a better understanding of the pain pathology, what causes pain. Fantastic, and all those things that you mentioned, I think they they will lead to phenomenal treatment of a whole host of pain conditions to decrease narcotics. But as you said, this the field of pain medicine is there to really provide a multimodal approach to treat pain appropriately and safely for people suffering from pain. Absolutely. Dr. Trescott, Lieutenant Commander and (laughs) um, U.S. Navy Marksmanship Scholar. Thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again and see you next time.